Are you ready to hear from another mental health therapist about some of life's challenges and how she's navigating through them? Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Christina Raymond, who will be sharing pieces of her wellness journey with us and giving us an inside peek on how she's creating the absolute best life experience for herself. Hi, everyone. Let me welcome you to the Serenity Capsules podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Halcyon Francis. I'm a clinical social worker and I operate a small mental health private practice right outside of Baltimore, Maryland. I started this podcast as a way to keep a connection with my current, past, and future clients. I love my job as a clinical social worker and therapist. I enjoy talking about mental health and wellness. And most of all, I love connecting with people and learning about life. My career is heavily focused on helping people create roadmaps to the life experiences they want to have. My personal journey has influenced much of how I interact with others and navigate the world. It is my joy to bring intriguing topics to this platform to assist all of us in getting what we need to live well. While listening to this podcast, I invite you to just be open, tune in, and receive. Y'all, I'm so excited today. We get to speak with Dr. Christina Raymond, who is the founder and lead therapist of Raymond & Associates LLC and Pura Vida Counseling Services, which are two mental health private practices based in New Jersey, one in Summers Point and the other in Mullica Hill. Dr. Raymond received her master's in clinical social work, or MSW, from Norfolk State University and her doctorate in social work from the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice. Dr. Raymond serves clients facing a wide range of challenges, people who are trying to overcome life transitions, grief, loss, stress, anxiety, and depression. She is a certified exposure relapse prevention therapist for the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder, which she'll tell us more about, and also a brain spotting trained therapist. With that being said, I welcome Dr. Christina Raymond, and I hope you all enjoy this episode as much as I did recording it. All right, everyone, I present to you Dr. Christina Raymond. Welcome to Serenity Capsules podcast, Dr. Raymond. Thank you for having me. This is my first podcast um, appearance ever, so I'm a little nervous, but welcome, welcome. I told everyone I was going to call you Christina for these purposes, so okay, okay, all right. So we're going to talk a little bit about your journey, your life journey, pretty much, not just in terms of social work and this, but overall how you have you know, overcome challenges, what challenges you face, stuff that other people do experience, but they don't realize other other therapists or other people have that in common with them. So if you can tell us a little bit about your story, I know with your particular practice, you post a lot about stories and yes. telling your story and the importance of holding on to your story and making power from it. So can you share some more about that? Absolutely. I'm a strong believer that, you know, we all have our unique set of stories that um, were either narrated for us. In other words, some of these stories were already created for us. Maybe we're from, you know, um, like for myself, I'm from a different country. And so um, these stories are narrated for us. Um, But then there are other ones that we create or recreate or as I'm finding out later on in my life is, rewriting them and ending chapters and starting new chapters so you know having endings and new beginnings Mm -hmm. with that i am a first generation immigrant my mother is from spain i'm also was born and raised in spain my dad is dominican so even though both of them are hispanic two very 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 different cultures Mm -hmm. different cultures and 
you know, they look very different. Mm -hmm. And so I was a mix of both of those. But I think growing up, it really added to the cultural richness for me. I learned how to dance flamenco and I also danced, you know, merengue. And so, you know, eating paella and eating... (laughs) and you know, pernil and all the, you know, Mofongo, all the Dominican mm-hmm. style of um, eating. And so I grew up very, in a very diverse area. My dad's military, so a lot of his friends from all, were, they were from all over the world, mm-hmm. different cultural, and just, I grew up seeing that. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I came to the United States that I saw a marked difference. And I think it had to do with the fact that Uh, My dad was stationed in Norfolk, Virginia, so so it's a southern part of Virginia, and it wasn't, at that time, very diverse. So immediately saw some marked differences and almost seen myself as an outsider coming in, (laughs) so to speak. And you immigrated here at what age? I was nine turning ten. Nine turning ten. So, yeah, a great deal of your childhood was spent in Spain, right? Yes, yeah. correct. Okay. Correct. So what was that like for you coming here? I immigrated at a time where um, it was part of the English speaking only movement. Mm. It's, it was a time politically where the agenda was to reinforce the fact that in America you speak English only. And so that was difficult. I think it was challenging because I'm coming to a new country, of course at that age, I want to fit in, you mm. know, everyone else. But my mom and my dad, you know, they're very respected, sort of, you know, living in this country. We all, they also wanted to speak Spanish at home. Mm-hmm. And that was very negatively um, looked upon at school. They would ask, what language do you speak at home? And you were essentially ostracized and kind of said, you know, you're in America now. You have to speak English only. Mm-hmm. So that created a lot of friction between my parents and I just wanting to fit in and the idea of like, all right, so I'm in America now. Am I an American or, you know, the identity component of it? Right. Um, which, you think about it, later on in adolescence, that was a big, huge uh, part of that as well, trying to find my identity. Huge. So how did you how did you do that? And how, I and, and that's, I guess people's major question would be, how long did it take for you to find your identity and who you, who you are? I think, you know, I definitely have to respect my parents because they were able to, you know, because I think we live in a culture here where it's like either or, mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, it, it's snow in the middle. And my parents raised me with the duality of it. That yes, you're in America, you respect the customs, you speak the language, but you also never forget where you came from and you respect those customs. So, you know, our parents essentially just remained steadfast on, the, you know, the holidays, the traditions, like little stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thankful for that because for a while I was like, nope, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm trying to fit in. And at that time, there weren't that many other Hispanics in the area. I think my experience would have been totally different mm-hmm. if I grew up in, in an area that had a huge Hispanic presence, like it is now, like mm-hmm. down there in Hampton Roads area. It's a huge Latino and Hispanic presence down there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a big difference. You're notable. Interesting. People look like you. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it did take a little bit. I think, you know, one thing that we we as clinicians learn early on is about the stages of development, Eric Erickson, and identity versus world confusion is sort of the one that happens during adolescence. So we try to find out who am I, how do I fit in? Mm-hmm. 
And I think mine was a little delayed <laughs> in trying to figure that out. But my parents were an integral part of that, and I thank them for that. Now that I am much older, I definitely um, see the importance of that. Um, so I'm, I'm really thankful for that. Yeah, there was a struggle at first, but the people that I became friends with, they themselves, even though some of them were from this country, they still had their family cultural norms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that really helped a lot to solidify and kind of say, okay, I'm not the only one. We might be different. But in some ways, in a lot of ways, we were very similar. Absolutely. So that helped. Yeah. And you have siblings, right? Yes. Okay. So did yes. you see them struggling at all with trying to fit in or was it you, easier for them? You know what's so ironic is, so my brother is a lot more fair-skinned than me. Mm. So it was a huge difference in terms of acceptability. He's much, he's two years older than me. And he was more readily accepted just because... He was fair skin and he, he looked, could, yeah. AKA pass. <laughs> I didn't pass. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I took after my dad. <laughs> um, so it was a little bit different fitting in. But I think, you know, I found my tribe and he found his tribe at the time and his people. And my younger siblings, because they were in the country much longer than we were, had really no real issues fitting in. And mm -hmm. then by then, that area began to diversify anyway. So by the time they became adolescents, they were fine. My sister is three years younger than me, and then I have another sister that's five years younger than me, and then um, my baby brother came, like, he's only six months, so he he acclimated right in. He was fine. <laughs> <laughs> he was fine. <laughs> yes, yes. In terms of your practice, I know you see, what, what population do you see? Do you see a heavily uh, high amount of immigrants with your population, and does your background help with that? I think, you know, it's it's not the full, my full practice, mm -hmm. but I do see a significant large amount of immigrants. I mean, it really does because that validate and normalize their, their experiences because a lot of times, regardless if you, you can't relate to the story, maybe you're not an immigrant or maybe you don't know what it is, but to have our feelings and our experiences validated and normalized, in other words, to say, I get where you're coming from, um, it really really does help with that mm -hmm. um, um, instance. And, you know, it, it makes them sort of feel at ease a little bit and Absolutely. their guard down. Absolutely. Uh, because a lot of them are guarded, <laughs> you know. There's a lot of mistrust sometimes in, in people who are in authoritative, mm -hmm. um, not authoritative, but sort of those roles where they're authority figures. Mm -hmm. And so they... They show some trepidation or some kind of like, oh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if this person's going to see me for who I am yeah. instead of the preconceived notion. I think what helps me is, and even though I had that experience, I still see each person that comes to my office as an individual. Sharing that piece of your story, and I know with social workers, we have to be careful with what we share with clients. But I think sometimes with sharing that, it makes them feel a little bit more comfortable and knowing that, all right, this person did this. I'm not the only one. I don't feel quite as isolated. I think that that makes it a little bit more fun. It makes it more acceptable, honestly. Because, you know, with people of color, we don't really go to therapy as often. I think it opens certain doors for them and different ideas about what is acceptable and what's not. Absolutely. And I definitely spend a lot of time, my experience have been too, if I'm seeing an adolescent or a college-level student, 
whose parents come in um, because even though maybe chronologically they're 18, but <laughs> we know that sometimes parents, especially in certain cultures, are still very much involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have this preconceived notion of what therapy is. And, you know, um, you're not going to tell me what I need to do with my child. So I spend a lot of time. And it's, it's beautiful to see the process because they start letting some of their guards down and they really recognize at the end of the day, um, you know, and even non, um, uh, you know, other, all families all together, a lot of times they feel like they're being ostracized or being judged because their child or the adolescent needs therapy. And that's not the case. You know, I definitely, you know, I, I, I say things like, it means it says a lot when you are willing to bring your child or helping your adolescent to come to see me in spite of your reservations that really shows that you care a lot and so I validate normalize and kind of get them you know I spend a lot of time as a relationally focused therapist Mm -hmm. on the relationship Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know all my certifications and all our degrees have feeling you know that doesn't mean anything if you can't connect with a client like you have to meet them where they're at you know I've had several people come to me and say you know I tried therapy before but I just felt like they were speaking to me in a very condescending tone Mm -hmm. or they asked me questions where I felt like I was being attacked in a way or you know or judged yes yeah yeah (laughs) so it's something that yes is it taught in books? Yes, but I think our backgrounds also enhances that. I think um, so. so we can have those discussions about Saturday morning, you know, mom being woke into like Latin music or Calypso music, and you know what that means? Time, Time to, to clean. clean. <laughs> <laughs> no, those Saturday morning cartoons, like no, you got to clean, and that that was just part of that, you know, and. Sleeping in was not necessarily an option. It was not an option, not for me, not for you either. It it wasn't for me either. No. Um, And it's funny because now I'm the same way. When I, you know, get in the mood to get up and and clean up, I I put the music on. And it just really is about what has been modeled to me. And so I continue that. That's right. That's a legacy, I guess. Yeah, that is a legacy. Your your kids probably don't appreciate it much, but it's a legacy. (laughs) Especially when we have the discussion about imposter syndrome, that's where it hurts a lot. I know you and I had the same, well, different experiences. You can tell them about your experience with, with imposter syndrome. And, you know, we, we've had discussions about this as well, but specifically yes. about your experience. I don't know, was it just in graduate school or did you have it prior to that? Or did graduate school really just kind of bring it to the forefront for you? I think graduate school really like brought it out there. Mm-hmm. But if I look back, I could see other moments where um, I had to show up, like really show up. So like going to work, I was dressed to the T's. Like it was, it was as a, a female and as a minority woman, um, you know, it's, I had to work harder and understanding that. And I knew about things like the differences in pay. I mean, you know, finding out that my male, um, you know, a Caucasian male therapist was making $25,000 more than I am. Mm. The same education, same experience. And so I learned early on, I had to show up. Worked in a, you know, treatment facility, acute psychiatric hospital, and I'm wearing my little kitten heels and my little suits. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? They didn't mess with me. It worked, um, you know, as far as the residents. Now, fast forward to 
grad school, I'm sitting at an Ivy League institution, and we're going around the room. And, you know, they're, they're talking about being in private practice and being psychoanalytically trained and this and that, which is good for them. But I'm like, they're, we're going around the room, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, they're going to come to me next. <laughs> and I'm like, Christina Raymond, uh, community mental health, you know, working with low-income, high-risk communities. Mm-hmm. And the switch happened when I realized that what I had to offer my experiences well, first of all, in my mind, I was like, well, some of you guys wouldn't even last the day in my environment that I work in. Mm-hmm. And number two, I knew I had meaning and purpose. Like, that was my calling. And and it really shaped the way that I saw things like injustices and how that plays in, in mental health. And, yeah. and I wouldn't change that at all, the, those experiences. And so, you know, it took a couple classes, <laughs> but then, you know, because every time we had a new instructor, we had to do the same process. Absolutely. After a while, I was like, yeah, Christina Raymond, community mental health, low-income, high-risk communities, immigrants, blah, blah. You know, I knew I had, I brought experiences, and that's what our education was about. That's the reason why we were chosen to come into this program. That's right. Is to add to the body of knowledge and to you know, kind of expands people's thinking about, you know, what we all have to offer. And collectively, we did. I think we did that, right? We did do that. (laughs) Yes, we absolutely did that. We, We absolutely did that. And I had a different experience because I went there for the MSW program. So I was kind of used to seeing what people were coming in with because I, too, had the same experience. When I went for my MSW at the same Ivy League school, they're all giving their backgrounds and where they went to undergrad. Here I am, I went to an HBCU, which you know was very small, wasn't one of the bigger ones, wasn't one of the well-known ones, but here I am coming from my small little HBCU that's out in the sticks. And they're like, oh, you know, I went to Cornell for undergrad, I went here for undergrad. I'm like, oh, crap, okay. But what I did realize is that I was as prepared as they were, if not more prepared than some of my colleagues. Number one, because of my institution. Number two, because of the work I put in into my into my craft, into my studies. And also, I worked prior to going to the MSW program. So you're right. I found my purpose. I found who I was. That's where I actually found my stride in my MSW program because I realized, okay, I'm really good at this. This is working out. I have a, I have, this is my calling. This is what I'm supposed to be doing at this point. And no one can stop that. Absolutely. Yeah, so it didn't matter what I looked like, where I was from. So then I also understood that it, this wasn't just about me. It was about my community as well. It was about women. It was about people of color as a whole. Some of these people had never met anyone like me um, before. And so I had to just come into my full self and be who I was because I was doing a disservice to myself by not you know, speaking up as a black woman, not speaking up as a child of immigrants, not being who I particularly was. I got over that imposter syndrome, like you said, pretty much maybe after a couple weeks after we had to keep introducing ourselves and speaking up about the experiences we have now has imposter syndrome impacted you as a professional at all not even in graduate school i think i think this is why i decided to to um, continue my studies and and become a doctoral level licensed clinical social worker Mm -hmm. we didn't need the doctorates to be able to practice right but it's, it, it's, it's having that certainty to have that speak for myself. Now that I've been in practice, now I, I, I don't. I only had one person, like she was an older woman, 
and she asked me, do you think you can help me? And in the past, that would have drove my imposter syndrome straight up. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I, I sat back and, and I challenged her and I said, well, do you believe I can? Like I put it back on mm-hmm. her mm-hmm. and she, we had this moment of understanding. <laughs> like, I think she felt my certainty about myself and that, you know, it wasn't what was said, it was what was felt in a therapeutic space. Mm-hmm. And she chose to continue to work with me where other clinicians she hasn't been able to connect with. Right. And so I have to definitely give a shout out um, because I went to graduate school. I went to an HBCU in North State, <laughs> Nicole, right? And I have to honestly say that looking back, that degree really set me up for success mm-hmm. at the University of Pennsylvania. I mean, it just really did because it made me challenge and look at how theories are looked at look at the flaws looked at you know um issues like colonialism and racism and how those are sometimes embedded in our um you know in our own theories Mm -hmm. you know since then i can honestly say there have been a couple imposter syndrome moments Mm -hmm. you know and i think we could all relate to that where we feel we doubt ourselves am i good enough you know and sometimes it's okay to have like these moments versus living an imposter syndrome life. That is, it could take over yourself. Yes. These moments could come, you acknowledge them, you honor them. Like, yeah, I might feel this way, but then you have to sit back and say, which is something that I did in the program was like, no, I have this to offer. I have this uh, dearth of experience and education. I know what I'm capable of. Mm -hmm. So I don't necessarily have to prove myself. But I was telling you before where I was in, in one of these clubhouse uh, mm-hmm. um, kind of forums and I was just sitting there. I just want to listen because I one thing I definitely know is you can learn a lot from different people regardless of the profession and Absolutely. everything. I don't think that anyone is beneath me, but I was made to feel like attacked because of my credentials. Um, and in the past, I wouldn't say anything, but this time I, I, I waited patiently and I spoke up and I said, you know, you're right. Your credentials before or after your, your name doesn't necessarily mean anything if you don't find meaning or purpose and you have it. I said, but I earned that. And what, you know, I explained to, to the forum was like, I got here not to a point A to B, like I went and stopped undergrad, worked for, you know, four or five years, went to graduate school, worked a little bit more, and then earned, we earned, we definitely earned Earned our doctorate. It It was not given to us. (laughs) And so making them recognize that, you know, I don't go in and floss it, but at the same time, you shouldn't make me feel bad because of that. I worked really hard for for my credentials and my certification and, you know, before I was like, oh, no, you don't have to call me that. <laughs> and now it's like, no, I, you know, I, I really earned it. We wouldn't hesitate to call somebody else, like a professor or someone else, doctor, why, why should we? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's part of that, part of that imposter syndrome. Like, do I not, did I not earn my right to be called that? Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, you did it. <laughs> we did. Yeah, I often go back and forth with that as well. Only because I'm not a person who goes by formal names a lot. Um, yeah. but yeah, I do believe in certain spaces we should use it. 
because yes. it means a lot. And it also means a lot to younger women, minority women as well, to say, oh, okay, she has a doctorate. Maybe it's possible for me as well to do so. Yeah, and, and I'm the same way. You know, they'll, they, they, they'll ask me, what, what do I call it? What do you feel most comfortable in calling me? Mm-hmm. I will answer to whatever. And you're right, I'm just saying in certain spaces, we do have, we've earned the right to, to use that title. But sometimes I get Doc or Christina or Miss Christina or, you know. Um. So moving ahead, you made, a, you made a comment about when, you know, a couple years ago, or I can't remember exactly what you said, maybe a couple years ago, you would not have spoken up in Clubhouse when the person kind of made a bit of a jab to you. And yes. I think speaking up now comes along, that's one of the benefits of getting older of aging and coming into who you are is that you're readily available or you're you're more prepared just to speak up when necessary and also if someone needs to be put in their place you'll do it more readily too without saying oh my god i'm gonna hurt this person's feelings or not second guessing it you just go ahead and do it which as women i think sometimes we're discouraged from doing because it doesn't seem very ladylike yes but we've gotten past that because we're both over a certain age but it, it falls along with finding your purpose and creating balance, I think, in your life. Yes. I think it does. And I've watched you over the past, I would say maybe three or four years, you know, doing more self-care activities. It may have started before then, because we follow each other on social media. I've seen you do the runs and working out and challenging yourself and just becoming more physically active, which I believe is part of your self-care routine. So can you tell us more about, you know, is it something that's new for you? Is it something you always done? Or is it just kind of an idea that you realized you needed to implement more in your life? Absolutely. I think it's evolved over time. Mm-hmm. I think it's recognizing that, you know, especially when we're as women, as minority women, it's sort of like we're the sacrificial. We have to expend all our energy and our family, not just our immediate family, but extended family. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, over time having boundaries that's so so important and it's it's like speaking a different language when you first say no it's so uncomfortable and you kind of almost regret it uh, but i realized that saying no more often made room for the yeses that did matter yeah. because what would happen is i would say yes i can do that yes i can do that of course i got it i got it and then i would be spent by the end of the evening right as far as like my you know working out and, and taking time for myself my family has recognized I need it. I need that. When I don't have that, I, I, you know, you, we always say you can't pour from an empty cup, and you know we're really good about giving advice. And you know, sometimes in the past, I can think about how much advice I dished out, and I wasn't practicing that, you know. And and so I made it a priority. You know, I meditate in the mornings. I I have my cafecito, my little coffee. That's you know a form of meditation where I'm sitting in front of the window and kind of taking it in, exercising, and also balance. So if if I'm tired and I'm supposed to be exercising, I'm okay. Yeah. I'm good. I'm going to listen to my body, what it says. Uh, and I think to just reach a more of my authentic self, not doing things with what I think people want me to do or act, more of being in tune. So if it doesn't sit with, right with me to say, no, this doesn't serve me, as opposed to, no, I'm going to make it work because mm-hmm. this is what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And because when we do that, I'm pretty sure all of us can relate that resentment builds 
<laughs> and so it's it's being honest with yourself and saying, you know what, this doesn't serve me. I, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I would really want to go to that event, but I have too much on my plate. Absolutely. It, it's really habit. And the more you get in a habit of doing that, you know, not saying that old habits are hard to break, but sometimes I see myself obsessing over like, should I say yes? And I'll say no. <laughs> I have, I've made my choice. <laughs> I'm going to stick with this. Yes. <laughs> I'm good. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's a big challenge. And I think finding purpose and balance, it's an ongoing work. And, you know, it's not, has to be like all balance. Because I, I actually work with somebody who right now is, has so many self-care activities that they're not happy. And so, you know, they are inundated with, you know, yoga and this and that. And so if they don't get to everything on their list, it just ruins their day. And that's not the purpose of self-care. Right. (laughs) Right? I'm taking the time out for me. Let me sit in the moment. Because if you have so much planned out, that's why you're not in the moment. You're thinking about what else you have left. Like, I have this. So I I try not to overbook myself. So if, if that day all I was able to do was sit down and have my cup of coffee and look out the window, guess what? That was time for me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think I think with social media, a lot of people post like all these things that they're doing and and all of that. Yeah. Comparison is definitely a downfall. You know, and, and we naturally do that. We compare. Oh well. I didn't get to do that, or all I did today was just, real, I slept in, hey, you, you did what was good for you, and so it's keeping that in check as well, you know, how to have some balance, not spending a lot of time on social media, which is it's a problem. It's hard, it's hard not to spend time on social media, it's hard, it I will be the first to admit, I spend much more time on Instagram than I should, because it's fun. But it, it does fall in line with balance. But I can tell when my brain is feeling kind of tired. And sometimes it's just from looking at this phone all the time or getting involved and stuff. It really has nothing to do with me. I, you know, I, I, sometimes I just pull myself back. I don't need to look at everyone's vacation pictures that they took during the pandemic. It's not necessary. So, so what does your typical good self-care day look like? And I'll have to throw this out there as well. I know you have to have your coffee. That was one of your requirements when we were in school. You had to have your coffee. There was not a moment. And also, I'll, I'll, I'll correct something that you said as well. Christina, I have never seen you wear a kitten heel ever in my life. I don't know what I would do if I saw. First of all, I'm a notorious kitten heel hater. I have never seen you wear a kitten heel. I've never probably seen you wear anything lower than three inches, even to class. We would go to lunch, and Christina's like, click, click, clicking away. I'm like, are you okay? She's like, I'm fine. And guess what? She was fine. She was absolutely fine like how's this girl doing this we've been sitting here eight hours a day and she has on stilettos but that's that's how christina rolls so sorry back to my self-care and and then you know the kitten heel when i worked at a treatment facility i did have my little those i kicked off and those are harder to wear to me than than the higher heel ones (laughs) but with time i think one of the other things is the cultural component of that, you know, mm-hmm. where it was a modeled. Not necessarily my parents were like, this is how you have to look, but it was more of the, your presence speaks for yourself. Mm-hmm. And growing up in Europe, like, you know, nowadays it's different, but growing up, you kind of show up to anywhere wearing leggings and all of that. 
So, you know, I might, when I dress up, I dress out. Yes, but you do. Most of the time, like today, my, my pin sweatshirt and my leggings, like that's my uniform, you know, or, you know, my sneakers. That's how I roll. I, I'm more about comfort. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's breaking that down and challenging, like how much is, am I doing this for myself versus everyone else? Yeah. If I, you know, and there are moments where I'm like, oh, I'm going to get myself dolled up. I want to do this for myself. Versus the need to 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 show up for so many. I show up for myself now. That's a big difference. Right. And definitely, I gotta have my coffee. You have to have your coffee. Coffee's a cultural thing too. You know, we had our coffees in Spain in the morning, and then you know for tea time. And you know, I try not to again create imbalance. But if I see myself drinking more than two cups a day, I'm like, all right, I gotta bring it down. So I, mm-hmm. you know, there have been times three three four cups, but I'm like, nope, I gotta bring it down. Because I'm, I'm doing too much. And I definitely want to enjoy it. So if I'm on my way out, I'd rather not drink a cup. Because I want to enjoy it. Yes. <laughs> and be in the moment. Yes. So to say, taste it. Feel the warmth. You know, and it's something soothing in common with that. And ironically enough, I grew up, my mom used to make chamomile tea all the time. Like, she had a sick stomach, chamomile. If problems going to sleep, chamomile tea. And I hated the smell of chamomile for so long. And now <laughs> I look forward to it. Like I'll make my little chamomile tea and it just, the smell, it just brings so many good memories and it's just it's soothing, so soothing and it helps me relax at night. Yes. So we were the only so, ones who actually brought tea bags everywhere we went in school. That sounds like, yes, we are definitely children of immigrants <laughs> and an immigrant. You don't go anywhere without tea. You always have tea. No. Wow. Okay. So say you have a regular Sunday. You started your nice self-care Sunday out with your coffee. What's next for you? Um, The weather has been nice. So just I'll sit out there Mm -hmm. and just like really take it in. I try to put my phone down because it just really takes away from that. Even if it's just a few minutes, just being in the moment, you know, the birds and all that gives a little bit of the sun on me um, that really helps a lot uh, sometimes it depends Sundays are very different so usually I do not work out but if it was a day I would work out first mm-hmm. and then have my coffee and it would go like that okay. <laughs> um, but something quick <laughs> I you know I would like to say that I enjoy yoga but I don't <laughs> I try to incorporate that in my practice I'm working at it I think uh it, it takes, it's a lot of work. <laughs> so I'm learning. Say that again, Christina. That. Yoga is a lot of work. People think it's just about, you know, savasana or just yes. kind of stretching mildly. Yoga is a lot of work. It is. It's a workout. It it's a good workout. You feel good afterwards. Absolutely. And I, I have to honestly say during quarantine, when we were, you know, we wouldn't, weren't able to leave the house. Like when I was doing yoga, that was probably the fittest I was. Yeah. Like in a good way. Like I just felt, so I've been telling myself I have to pick that back up again. <laughs> but you know, it's that, it's maybe a good meal that day. I, you know, I cook and I'll prep and I'll enjoy the moment. Um, and it could be just taking a stroll or something, nothing that too heavy. Yeah. I try not to do too much because I'm trying to prepare myself mentally for the week because it's so demanding. So I set my intentions for the week. I may not necessarily like, I'll check my, I still have an old fashioned calendar because I'm a very concrete kind of person. So I like to see everything. <laughs> so I quickly dance for the week and kind of set in my mind what I want to do. Um, and then 
spend time with family. Um, I don't watch a lot of television, but there are times when I actually finally do sit down and watch television. I'll binge watch something. Absolutely. But I'm I'm not a constant kind of if if that's if it's there. If it's not there, I don't do. Now, one thing that I definitely have created a boundary a long time ago is I don't watch um, news. I'll read it. Like, you know, on, on Apple News or something like that related, I read it because I'm in control of the content. Right. I can scroll past it. I try not to watch any of the videos because I know for me as an empath, it just is too much to take in. Right. Um, right. And so I definitely limit the amount of, of that type. I stay informed. I have to. But at the same time, I also limit because that's part of self-care. That's definitely limit, part of self-care. Limit that kind of intake. What kind of stuff are you intaking? Not just, not just your food, not your drink, but also, you know, gossip and television and all that. How much are you taking in of that? Um, and try to have some balance and not take in too much because it's not good. I completely agree with you 100%. I stopped watching the news back in, I believe it was 2003. And I just prefer to read it just for those reasons. To this day, even though I'm I'm involved with social activism, Black Lives Matter, everything, I've not seen that George Floyd video. I, I, I can't take it at all. And I'm just like you. That is preserving my sense of just peace because I knew it would bother me so much. I yeah. can't do it at and, all. And human suffering and is human just, suffering. you know. Yeah. And then a lot of times, too, when we have these events, they interview people, and you're seeing the trauma that they're going through. And us as professionals, we can't, like, we feel even more for, you know, for these people that they're interviewing. Yeah. And it's like, why are you re-traumatizing? It's just, it's yeah. just too much. Like, yeah. I really definitely, that's one thing I have. Um, I know my dad, when he, he served in Desert Storm, and he was gone for over a year. He's um, retired military now. But at that time, it was the first time that they really began to have a lot of news coverage of what was going on overseas. Mm-hmm. And I remember as a young person really having a breakdown because seeing that and the fear that it created as a young person and the feeling of hopelessness and helplessness of knowing that my father was over there and not knowing um was a lot and i learned early on what my triggers are what i can and cannot watch and so you know there have been times like 9 11 where you're just glued like once you're glued it's hard to get away from that and i've learned like you know unfortunately there have been a lot of tragedies that have occurred um you know and and i try to just not even look at that that I, I serve myself and my community by being informed and then and then channeling that in that energy instead of going into watching that that news coverage i can take that energy to try to problem solve in what ways i can help um it, my energy can be served in better ways than yes that. right in your bio you are certified for obsessive well treating obsessive compulsive disorder but what exactly tell us a little bit about what the certification is it's um, um, exposure relapse prevention mm-hmm. therapy or a therapist and, and, and my credential. But what it requires is, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder is a subtype of anxiety. It is an anxiety-based disorder, uh, but where you have these obsessive thoughts that will cause, compel you, which is compulsive, mm-hmm. but make you either avoid or do certain rituals. And so... I said, and you know, now that I'm trained in it and I'm certified, 
um, I could look back and pick up on things that clients will say, and I'll say, hmm, that's interesting. So I had one client, for example, say, you know, I got up in the middle of the night and I had to check the calendar like four or five times because I thought I was going to miss it. I was like, hmm, that in itself doesn't mean anything, but it's it. Let's, let's look into Explore that. that yeah. um, and it's not, most of my clients so far don't fit like the stereotypical of what OCD looks like. Right. You know, right. people say, oh my gosh, I'm so OCD. Everything has to be in order. First of all, we need to stop saying that yes. because... Yes. It, it stigmatizes mental health. Yes. And then the other part is, it's more than that. It's, it's the one that avoids certain things because their fear that something bad will happen. And they know logically, that's not going to happen. But it's that obsessional thinking that says, but what if? But what if? So I help them lean into it. It's like watching a scary movie. First time you and I are watching, we might jump and be scared at certain times. But if I make you watch that movie 50 times, you're know, like, yeah, yeah, somebody comes. Like it decreases, and so that's what I do. I found out where their highest are, and I work. We create a hierarchy, so we start from the bottom up. I I kind of like it because you get creative <laughs> on some things uh, <laughs> that they do. It kind of challenges them, and and sitting with the uncertainty. Yes. What if something were to happen? Just sit with that, yes. and and they realize with enough time that it's really not them. It was OCD bossing them down, and so I get them to. Especially my teenager, I'm telling you, got to boss OCD back. Um, you know, boss who won this week? Was it you or OCD? That's right. And so I had to name it. Um, there's some I had one person named it after their aunt that they disliked. <laughs> so we used the name, <laughs> and it's funny, you know. And so it's something as simple as lighting a candle in my office and say, "Let's go take a walk," you know. And they're afraid that the the place will actually burn down. And so like, we're gonna take a walk and we take for a, you know, a good portion of the fashion and we Woo! go back and say, see, you know, and we have to do it repeatedly. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's also deleting chats and texts thinking, well, what if I forget? That definitely, you know, I, I mentioned a couple of things and some of us could say, oh, wait a minute, I do that. <laughs> I don't want you to self-diagnose. Right. It's definitely- Because as you were talking, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> It becomes just like any other mental health disorder. It's like, yeah, we all get a little sad. We all get a little anxious. Sometimes, we'll, sometimes we get a little paranoid, mm -hmm. but not to the extent that it interferes with their daily lives. So, you know, people who suffer with OCD are really their whole life revolves around that. Right. And so, it is tough, and it takes a lot of energy from them. Yeah. It's you know, it's the adolescent who is so afraid something bad will happen to their parent. That the parent says, I'm going to go walk around the neighborhood, and they chase them down on the bike. Mm -hmm. What teenager wants to chase their parents down on the bike to make sure? They realize how illogical that is, but they understand that's obsessional thinking that makes them do that. And so we work on challenging that. Yeah. All right. Very cool. So how do people find you if they want to find you? I know you have two practices. I mentioned them yes. in the opening, but how do people find you? I am on Psychology Today mm -hmm. um, under Dr. Christina Riemann, R-E-A-M-O-N. Um, I have a social media page at Dr. D-R period underscore Christina. No H because, you know, Spanish people from Spain spell Christina differently. So C-R-I-S-T-I-N-A. Right. <laughs> so I, and that page is more general. It's not necessarily very specific to my practice, but um, definitely about 
just telling your stories. I think we can learn so much from each other when we share our stories and we talk about our stories. And um, so most of my posts are related to that, about writing stories, your narratives, and, and all of that. Yeah. And also at Pure Vita Counseling is my other one, um, and Instagram. Mostly Instagram. I do have Facebook, but... Yeah, yeah. We're, we're big Instagrammers here. We're big Instagrammers. And remind us again, you do the Wednesday? Wednesday's words. Yes. Um, just a quick sort of thing that I just started doing. So this is part of uh, overcoming, you know, my own insecurities and kind of, you know, the imposter part is... I do it on Wednesdays, usually legit in between clients. Like, I don't have time to second guess. If I mess up, oh well, some of my videos get <laughs> cut off. I don't I don't care because I'm showing up as I am yes. instead of um, editing and editing and then I'm posting it, which yeah. is something I used to do in the past. Now it's like, okay, these are my thoughts. And this is Basically it. Basically my thought, and it is what it is. Yeah. And it's short and sweet, but it's meant to just make you think about it. Yeah. Um, and so it is my hope that you know, and share that, like, we're all humans, and we all have our stories that we have to tell, just because we're therapists doesn't make us holier than, than now, because we're not, mm. sometimes it is our own journeys that brought us to this profession, Absolutely. Um, which, you know, I love. That speaks volumes to who you are as a person, yeah, this is exactly what you're supposed to be doing, I think, you know, as a colleague, as a friend, I've learned a lot from you. I didn't say this, I don't think I said this in the opening, but there were how many of us? 15 in our cohort, maybe? Yes. Something like 15. We dropped down 15 eventually. And I only clicked with certain people, you being one of them. That could be a personality flaw of mine or personality strength. I'm not sure. It's however you want to look at it. Strength or flaw. And um, I clicked with you because you seemed to me to be just one of those people who was very helpful and I remember going to statistics class, which is not my strong suit at all, and you just kind of helping me with that. You could have easily said, all right, well, I'm in here doing my own thing. I'm not helping this chick. We're not doing any of that stuff. So, <laughs> you know, every man for himself. So, but you did not do that. And I do, rec I do remember that about you being just kind of like a very nice human being overall. And I think that comes through just with who you are probably in your practice with your clients, which is, which is why you're successful, but also just as a friend. One last thing I wanna ask you, because I definitely believe in affirmations. I'm a big person, um, big believer in affirmations, and I give them to my clients. I use them for myself every week. I have one I use every week. What are some affirmations that you use for yourself that you can give to someone else to help them? Well, I think these are two that I have been using for quite a long time. Um, and one's simple, it's possible. I think a lot of times if we, I, for me personally, I don't want to speak, but if it's too positive, it's hard for me. At least with it's possible, it creates the possibility. So my brain's like, oh, okay, you're not totally challenging me. It's possible. And so it allows just enough space for that thought or that, or that idea yeah. or whatever to kind of be able to grow and manifest. Yeah. Um, there was another one. So when I was preparing for the, uh, the professional license and board exam, uh, right before taking it at my uh, graduate school, one of the professors says, well, traditionally you're a good student. doesn't mean you're going to pass. Mm. So back then the, the, the 
seed of fear was planted in my head and it just kind of stayed dormant and then when it was time when I finished my clinical hours all of a sudden it grew <laughs> and so I avoided studying which fed the fear of like yeah I'm definitely not passing because traditionally I, was, I have been a decent student and um, I had a set of affirmations and I had some great ones and the only one I remember that I used to today is is everything and anything I set my mind to I could do with ease and comfort mm. because a lot of times we don't want to try things because we fear the discomfort or we fear how difficult it is so it's simple I could do anything and everything with ease and comfort and it just give it gave me just enough to sit down and be able to study and then I studied some more and more and more and more and then I finally sat, took the test and passed it on on the first try yeah so it definitely helped I had to say it out loud at first because I didn't believe it <laughs> and then I had it written um and now I have it committed to memory and it is it's anything and everything I could do with yes. ease and comfort um and more people and this was years ago but now more and more people celebrities and normal people like you and I mm-hmm. Talk about the benefits of, of affirming. You think about even from a religious perspective, you speaking it into existence. Yes. Um, you know, you're affirming, you're making it a fact. Yes. And so it definitely creates new neural pathways in our brain to make that possibility. Yes. So, yes. And, and it's not a one and done. Not a, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a one sentence you do and just that's finished. You have to constantly repeat it to yourself over and over again until you begin to believe it. And like you said, until your brain actually becomes a part of your chemistry, a part of your 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 makeup. So I agree. Give them to us one more time so we can have them. It's possible. It's possible. It's a simple one. Mm-hmm. And everything and anything I set my mind to, I could do with ease and comfort. Anything and everything I set my mind to, I can do with ease and comfort. Well, thank you, Dr. Christina Raymond, for being my first thank like interview you. guest for the Serenity Capsules podcast. I appreciate I'm it. I'm so excited that I was a part of this. I was a little nervous, and then I had a cup of coffee right before. Of so. course, of course, of course. And th- again, don't forget, just go to Dr. Christina, D-R period underscore Christina, C-R-I-S-T-I-N-A, yes. and check out her Instagram page and the Wednesday Words. Words. <laughs> the Wednesday words. And um, yeah, she'll be there. And if they want to reach you, you can find you on Psychology Today, Instagram. Yes. Or if you want Facebook, you're on there. But that's not your preferred yes. method of uh, reaching people. Very good. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You're welcome.